Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Jason Creekmore and Shannon Deaton. Welcome to the show. In this episode, we are going to take a closer look at two of the most successful and well-known companies in America, McDonald's and Nike. Both of these companies are multi-billion dollar giants that have become part of American culture. However, this has not always been the case. Even McDonald's and Nike had beginnings. And during this episode, we are going to explore how these companies rose to dominance. Sitting across from me is my partner, Shannon Deaton. Hello. Over the last week or so, Shannon has become a quasi-expert on all things McDonald's, <laughs> and he will begin this episode. So, Shannon, take it away. Jason, I ate three Big Macs in preparation for this episode today. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel much better for it, absolutely. Uh, so, we'll just go ahead and start with a few quick facts about McDonald's. Of course, it's something that we're all familiar with. Uh, it's something that we see every day. As we drive into Williamsburg, especially where where I live, are there any McDonald's in uh, McCreary County? We have one in Whitley City. (laughs) So in terms of what McDonald's has been able to accomplish over the years uh, or up to present day is currently McDonald's feeds 68 million people every single day at its restaurants. That that is just a staggering number to me. It's, It's incredible. Uh, and you have to think, well, there's got to be a lot of money as well being made with that many people being fed. And of course, McDonald's earns $37.5 billion every year in the U.S. alone. And that's billion with a B. That's crazy. Hand over fist. <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, McDonald's gives away, now this one really surprises me, uh, McDonald's gives away 1.5 billion Happy Meal toys each year, making them the largest toy distributor in the world. So ahead of companies like Hasbro and Mattel. That, that, that's insane. If you'd have asked me going into this, you know, what is the largest toy distributor in the world? McDonald's would have never would have never crossed no, my mind. Not at all. Uh, so, you know, in terms of how many hamburgers they're actually selling, uh, there's a statistic that says McDonald's sells 75 hamburgers every single minute globally across the world. So when I think about that, I wonder, you know, how, how many calories are involved in that? Uh, probably more than the 2,000 <laughs> that, that are recommended. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, talking about that, there uh, there's actually a place in the Guinness Book of World Records for McDonald's. And one man, Don Gorski, is one of the title holders in that particular book. And he holds a record for eating the most Big Macs in his lifetime with a staggering statistic of 30,000 Big Macs consumed. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> across his lifetime. Uh, so he's eaten the equivalent of two Big Macs a day for 46 years. It's that, that's, that's unbelievable. <laughs> it's 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 just an incredible statistic. And I, I was listening to an interview that they conducted with Don Gorski, and he was talking about how it took him, I think, something like fourteen years uh, to consume ten thousand Big Macs, and that's kind of how they they track the next benchmark. Uh, so if he wants to continue adding to the record. He has to live another 14 years. And that was what he was most concerned about. In the video interview, he was talking about how he wonders if he can make it another 14 years so that he can continue consuming these Big Macs because he'll have another 10,000 in by the time those 14 years are up. 
it's just <laughs> that's 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 unbelievable. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. So not only does McDonald's sell hamburgers, of course, they also sell French fries to the tune of nine million pounds of fries every single day. Now I don't eat a lot of Big Macs, but I do like French fries. And I, I've heard the ones at McDonald's are some of the best. I I, I have to say I'm guilty of consuming a, a French fry or two uh, from McDonald's <laughs> over the course of my life. They're just that good. So. When we're tracing the roots of McDonald's and we're going back all the way to the beginning, there's a very interesting history, as many of the American corporations certainly have. And the name McDonald's itself is tied, of course, to the original brothers who started the company uh, in 1948. The brothers' names were Maurice and Richard McDonald. Maurice's nickname was Mac, so it's not a large stretch to go from there to, <laughs> to think about where we get uh, the Big Mac, <laughs> of course. Um, but this restaurant was founded in San Bernardino, California. And uh, for a very long time, it was the original McDonald's. Now, if you've been watching movies lately, you may have seen a movie called The Founder. And it's a movie starring Michael Keaton. <laughs> I said in a previous episode that Michael Keaton is one of my absolutely all-time favorite actors. And in The Founder, he does not disappoint. It is a wonderful, wonderful movie. And based on some of the research I've done for this episode, it's pretty factually accurate, surprisingly. There were just a couple of little small issues that were different than how things occurred in real life. But for the most part, it's pretty true to fact. Although the McDonald brothers play a large role in the movie, the real star of the film is the real-life person that Michael Keaton actually plays, who is uh, a person named Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc's been credited as the founder of McDonald's all the way up to 1991 when some of the original credit was given back to the McDonald's brothers. But this is where the story gets really interesting. Ray Kroc was 52 years old at the time that he discovered the McDonald's restaurant, and uh, he was actually a malt and shake mixer salesman, so he'd done a lot of different things in the sales industry. I think one source said that he sold something like Dixie Cups for about 17 years, if you can imagine that, before he went on to start selling these milkshake machines. And this was a time when really these milkshake machines and, you know, the concept of the fast food restaurant really just did not exist. So uh, whenever Ray Kroc was selling these machines, he was going door to door. You know, he was loading them up in the back of his car and he was driving to different places in the country. And he started to hear these rumors spreading about what these McDonald brothers were doing all the way over on the West Coast in California. And he started to become intrigued because the McDonald's brothers were actually using eight of these mixers. And the mixers were able to mix five shakes at a time each. So at this time period... Do do the math on that. Yeah, he, he really couldn't imagine how they were putting all of these to use. And these were not cheap machines. So he loaded up and he traveled all the way over uh, to, to California. And he visited the shop actually for the first time in 1954. And when he got there, he was very surprised and he was very inspired because he discovered a simple, efficient format that the McDonald brothers were using that allowed the brothers to produce huge quantities of food at very low prices, very similar to the model we have today. So at the time, the McDonald brothers were charging 15 cents for a basic hamburger, which was about half the price charged at competing restaurants. So obviously, this restaurant was doing very well. You know, at 15 cents a hamburger, I'm, I, I think yeah. I'm all in on yeah. that. Even in, the 50, <laughs> even in the 50s. Yeah, even in the 50s, you know, 15 cents for a hamburger, that, that sounds like a deal to me. 
So one thing that Ray Kroc discovered as part of this process as well is that the self-service counter model that the uh, the McDonald brothers had created eliminated completely the need for waiters and waitresses. So customers receive their food very quickly uh, because, as you know, the model still the same today. Hamburgers were cooked ahead of time. They were wrapped. They were warmed under heat lamps. And that whole model was developed right here on the West Coast. And Ray Kroc was experiencing that for the very first time. I mean, <clears throat> I've seen that in, in multiple restaurants. I mean, obviously, but I, I really didn't know that McDonald's was like, you know, truly the first one yeah. to do that. That's that's pretty cool. It is. It really is because we've seen a lot of restaurants replicate that model. When I was uh, 16 or 17 years old, I worked at a Burger King. <laughs> I worked at Dairy Queen. All right. So <laughs> we've seen the outgrowth of, uh, you know, what McDonald's created all these uh, all these years ago. So it's, it's really incredible when you think about it. But Ray Kroc saw an opportunity here. And he offered to begin a franchise program for the McDonald brothers. And he opened the first McDonald's franchise, one that he would actually own and operate, in De Plains, Illinois in 1955. So if you just think about the sequence of events here, he traveled to the West Coast in 1954. One year later, he already has the McDonald brothers signed up for uh, him to create these franchises. And he opens the very first one in Illinois. Now, this is where a lot of the contention starts because Ray Kroc at this time, again, he's a salesman at heart. So he's going to all of these different places. He's meeting with people, very influential business people, and he's doing a lot of the legwork for these McDonald brothers. Meanwhile, the brothers are situated firmly at the original restaurant and they're collecting a lot of this money, but they're not going out and doing a lot of the work. You know, and some folks would say, well, fair enough, right, sure, yeah. <laughs> because Ray Kroc was hired to do this work. And that's exactly that's what he's doing, what right? he's doing. Right. So but the thing that started to, to sort of bubble up inside of Ray is that he felt more of a sense of ownership about the company, especially as it started to expand. So he actually ran into just a, a person, a financial expert, and the meeting was very serendipitous. Uh, the, the person's name was Harry Sonneborn, and he started to talk to Ray about a new model that Ray could potentially use to make more money from the position that he was holding. So he's going out, he's allowing people to enter into these franchise deals with McDonald's, but the real money wasn't necessarily in the franchise itself. It was in the rent paid from the land where the store actually sat. So uh, this, this other player here, Harry, he gave this idea to Ray Kroc, and Ray Kroc opened up a real estate business, essentially, which became one of the first major pushes of the McDonald's Corporation. So the model was very simple. The franchisees would pay Kroc a monthly rental fee for the land that the store was located on, which was a genius idea if you think about it, because no matter how well the business is performing, Ray is still going to get his money. You're still getting paid. Right? <laughs> He's still getting paid. And it wasn't just this. He, he sort of had an either or model. So the model was that the franchisees would pay Kroc a monthly rental fee for the land or a percentage of their sales, whichever was greater. He certainly had his bases covered. He had his bases covered, and he was certainly on the receiving end of a lot of money during this time. And it wasn't long before he started to consider the idea that, hey, maybe I should just own the whole concept of McDonald's. Forget about these <laughs> yeah, uh, McDonald brothers. It's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he wants to make... 100% of the money, <laughs> right? So the best way to do that is to actually acquire the, you know, the full company of McDonald's. And he did just that. 
1961, he worked out an arrangement with the McDonald brothers, and he became the sole owner of the name, the corporation, and also all but one of the McDonald locations. Wow. So what's interesting about this is whenever the deal was worked out, there was a formal arrangement that allowed Ray to own the company, own the name, etc. But there was also something called a handshake deal. So if you're like me, you always want things in writing if you're going to be working out formal deals. But Ray Kroc was able to influence the brothers to, to do a handshake deal. And it's just a very informal arrangement where there's nothing in writing. There's nothing signed. It's just, you know, two people putting their hands together and saying, we will do this thing. Right. And you can probably think about how this turned out. Probably not well for the McDonald's brothers. Not great. <laughs> if I had to guess. Uh, at all. Yeah, it, it, was a, it was a terrible deal. But the handshake actually, uh, the handshake deal was an agreement between Ray Kroc and the brothers to give them 0.5% royalties on franchise sales for the rest of their lives, which is a pretty sweet deal, uh, even during the 1960s and 1970s when this money would have been being paid out. But unfortunately, Ray Kroc did not honor this agreement. There's a whole segment of it in the Founder movie, which is very interesting. But if you're to calculate the royalty fee that the McDonald brothers would have received, uh, it would have been valued at $15 million per year in 1977. And that's, that's half a the, percent. That's just the royalty. That's, that's just, yeah. Oh my gosh. Just the royalties alone at 0.5% would have been $15 million a year in 1977. And by 2012, as high as $305 million a year. So an incredible sum of money. And the the McDonald's brothers got very little of that because, you know, wow. Ray Kroc uh, withdrew from the deal. I think in total, they did receive something to the tune of $2.75 million with the initial agreement which, man, pales in comparison to, to what they could have actually received. And, and Ray Kroc speaks to this in his book, uh, Grinding It Out is the name That's of that That's the book. name of the book. It oh, is, okay. yeah. And it's an autobiography that kind of carries out the life of Ray Kroc, and he's the writer of the book. And I was reading through this, and when I did, I was very surprised at two things. Number one, he's a fantastic writer. He really is. I mean, the book Capture Me, I expected to just sit down and spend a few minutes with it. It has a big McDonald's logo on the front. Sure, you know, yeah. And uh, it was being sold around the time the founder came out as a promotional piece. Of course, it was released, I think, back in the 70s. But as you're reading through that, uh, the first thing that surprised me was he's a fantastic writer. And the second thing that surprised me is how arrogant he really was about this entire deal. I mean, it's just one of these stories where uh, he was just very in the brother's face about the details of what happened. In the book, he wrote, if they, meaning the brothers, had played their cards right, that 0.5% would have made them unbelievably wealthy. Man, what a slap oh across the face. It's it's terrible. That's, that's pretty brazen there. To, it's, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> kind of say that. <laughs> yeah, so relatives of Maurice or Mac McDonald uh, said that he was so distraught over the deal. This this was one of the one of the brothers that it attributed to his eventual death from heart failure in 1971. So the the franchise and the oh gosh, just worry company and stress yeah, and, it was yeah. purchased in 1961 10 years later. He passes away, and the family says, well, it was over the stress of this deal, and uh, you know, a lot of it might relate back to this handshake agreement that never manifested. Now, prior to that, though, uh, one thing that 
I think some of the sources said really spurred Ray Kroc to withdraw the handshake deal is that when he signed over the paperwork or when everyone signed the paperwork to give Ray Kroc ownership, he didn't realize that the original restaurant would still be licensed to the brothers. So the one that was in San Bernardino, California, the one that they uh, Ray eventually or originally visited and, uh, you know, was so, so impressed with that one stayed with the brothers. And when Ray found this out, he was absolutely furious. Yeah, I guess he, he hadn't read the paperwork in, in great detail. So the first thing he did uh, is he realized, well, I guess he knew this, but he, he used this. Uh, he owned the name McDonald's. So even though the brothers' last name were McDonald, uh, Ray Kroc, as of 1961, uh, actually began to own the name McDonald. So he went to that original restaurant. He essentially issued a cease and desist on the name. On the name, yeah. So so the the brothers here obviously are you know like wow this but this is our name you know and he said well I own. I own that your name, name. essentially. <laughs> yeah. so, something tells me that he uh, he had a he had problems uh, probably sharing as a kid. <laughs> I, I'm gonna say he he acted a lot like my three year old <laughs> did this morning with her little sister. Uh, but yeah, the so the original restaurant had to be renamed. They kept it open and they changed the name to the Big M. All right, so we've got the Big M, and then we have Ray Kroc, who just in spite of everything, opens a McDonald's one block away from the just Big M. For the ultimate, <laughs> ultimate slap in the face. Ultimate right? slap yeah. in the face. Uh, and in six years, he runs them out of business. They close down, and that's the end of their story. And, you know, of course, this attributes or contributes to the eventual death, supposedly, of, of one of the brothers there, of Mac. So, uh, with all that being said, Ray Kroc credited himself with being the founder of McDonald's, even though his restaurant was actually the ninth McDonald's that opened, uh, which is very surprising and interesting. And for a very long time, McDonald's as a corporation advertised that, yeah, Ray Kroc was the founder. He was the original creator of McDonald's. And it wasn't until 1991 that the company decided to also honor the McDonald's brothers with credit for creating the restaurant. So very interesting uh, events there. Something I also found very interesting. Uh, In 1963, have you ever heard of a clown named Ronald McDonald? I have. I have. (laughs) He was a big part of my childhood. I just remember the commercials. Ronald McDonald and Pennywise. Yeah, those are (laughs) the clowns. Those those are the top three in rank order. In rank order. So Ronald McDonald was created in 1963. This was two years after Ray Kroc purchased the the you know the company of McDonald's, and it's interesting to me that he named the clown after the brothers. I mean, if you really kind of drill down in that, I'm sure there's some psychological <laughs> analysis <laughs> yeah, to be sorry. done. Like take this, take this. But uh, yeah, so so the name of the clown was or is Ronald McDonald. The brothers both were still alive at this point, probably wondering about that handshake deal. <laughs> <laughs> but that's awkward. It, it must have been the strangest thing. <laughs> Uh, And then also during this time in 1963, or I'm sorry, a year prior to 1963, the double M symbol became the McDonald's most enduring logo. So when you think of McDonald's and the the golden arches, uh, yeah, it came out in 1962, just a year after Ray Kroc, um, you know, actually bought and acquired the company. Uh, Other McDonald creations include the Big Mac in 1968, the Egg McMuffin. In 1973, the Happy Meal in 1979. It's been around for a while, and Chicken McNuggets in 1983. Oh so. wow! My favorite's Diet Coke. 
<laughs> I think I, I think McDonald's. Uh, I think they do Diet Coke better than anyone. You know what? I, I like Diet Coke and I, sausage biscuits. <laughs> if Ray Kroc had an opportunity, he'd probably put his name on Diet Coke <laughs> if he could. Uh, so obviously, McDonald's expanded well beyond those original restaurants. Uh, the chain continued expanding domestically and internationally. It extended into Canada in 1967, reaching a total of 10,000 restaurants by 1988. Currently, as of 2019, there are 37,855 restaurants across the world that have the big golden arches right there on the top. Uh, Growth was so swift in the 90s that it was said a new McDonald's opened somewhere in the world every five hours. That's every five hours. <laughs> every five hours. Now, I don't know if that's a literal statistic, but I think it certainly goes a long way to speak to the feeling at the time of there's a McDonald's everywhere. Well, let's, let's just run with it. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> it sounds good. It's got to be true. Uh, so the growth was due to the speedy delivery model as well as affordable food, fun, and flavors that appealed to the American family. And this very much was advertised as a family restaurant, whereas a lot of the Restaurants at the time were not necessarily for the family. They were for business. They were for young kids. They would hang out uh, at malt shops and things like this. Um, But yeah, this was one of the restaurants that was really targeted at the American family. And, you know, it really gained a lot of its uh, success and momentum as a result. So that brings us up to current topics concerning McDonald's. And we certainly, in any conversation about McDonald's, have to mention one of the great documentaries of our day. <laughs> in 2004, there was a documentary developed by a uh, an independent filmmaker named Morgan Spurlock, and that documentary was called Supersize Me. Oh, yeah. I'm, I am very familiar with this. Uh, we watched this probably three or four times uh, over, over a couple of years. Yeah, and I, it seems like the first time I saw it, seemed like I watched it with a group of friends uh, because we were just so interested in the logo on the front because if you can just see it in your mind. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I clearly can remember it. Yeah. <laughs> There's just a picture of Morgan Spurlock on the cover of the DVD. I just remember it sitting right there on the shelf, and his face is just stuffed with fries. Yep. I mean, just, you know, three dozen fries just <laughs> right in his mouth. And, uh, you know, the big title splashed across the top, Supersize Me. How much more interesting could you get? So essentially in the documentary, Spurlock created an experiment uh, where he was to consume a large quantity of McDonald's food over the course of 30 days. And he set up several conditions uh, for this consumption. And they included the fact that he must fully eat three McDonald's meals per day, meaning breakfast, lunch, and dinner. (laughs) He must consume every item on the McDonald's menu at least once over the course of the 30 days. He did this in nine days. So we're talking the oh Egg gosh. McMuffin, the Sunday, the Fish Filet, you know, all these things he consumed within nine days. He must only ingest items that are offered on the McDonald's menu, including bottled water. So he couldn't even drink out of his own tap at the house. He couldn't buy his own bottled water. He had to get water from McDonald's. All outside consumption of food is prohibited, which is really interesting to me because the documentary does say that his girlfriend at the time was a nutritionist. So I always found that really interesting. She was monitoring him along the way. Obviously, he was in 
wonderful health when all of this started, and we'll see how that turned out. <laughs> so uh, one thing about, uh, about the movie, that the thematic element of it was it's called Super Size Me. So during this time, McDonald's was running different promotions. One of them was the act of supersizing your meal where you could get larger fries oh, yeah. or yeah. more drink or yeah. bigger sandwiches. I partook of that several times. <laughs> yeah, it was very popular for a long time. Um, but as part of the experiment, Spurlock had to supersize his meal if the cashier or the person at the window offered it to him. Now, you might remember this, Jason. Whenever you would go to McDonald's at the time, yep. you'd order, and they'd say, would you like to supersize I that? absolutely remember that. Yeah, and this was very common. So when it happened, part of his rules in the documentary was that he had to say, yes, please. Yep. <laughs> so uh, he could not request to supersize on his own. He did set that limit and, you know, thank goodness he did because we're going <laughs> to find out exactly what happened to him. But in addition to that, he also tried to instill some exercise. It wasn't necessarily an abundance of exercise, but he did attempt to walk about as much as a typical U.S. citizen based on the suggested figure of 5,000 steps a day. Now, some sources say he didn't stick real closely to that, but that's what he set out to do. Now, you might be wondering, did this man live <laughs> for 30 days? <laughs> well, the, the truth is, yes, yes, he did. Uh, so on February 1st, which was the first day, day one of the experiment, Spurlock starts the month with a breakfast near his home in Manhattan, uh, where there is an average of four McDonald's locations per square mile. So he sits down <laughs> to consume that that first uh, McMuffin or <laughs> uh, gravy and biscuits, right, I, you know, right. whatever it is. There's nothing uh, wrong with gravy and biscuits. There's nothing, absolutely <laughs> nothing. We, we could have that right now. Um, but, you know, that's all perfectly fine and innocent. Well, on day two, uh, this brings Spurlock's first of nine supersized meals. And I remember this explicitly in the documentary. He, he pulls up to the drive-thru uh, to, to order, and they say, would you like to supersize it? And he just kind of looks at the camera, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, yes, please. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. So this first supersized meal consisted of a double quarter pounder with cheese, supersized french fries, and a 42-ounce Coca-Cola the size of your head. And it takes him 22 minutes to eat it. And, and part of this challenge is that he has to eat it all. So right, yeah. I, I, again, I see him, you know, in my mind's eye reflecting back on watching this documentary, he's sitting in the parking lot and he's eating this burger and he's eating the fries. And I just remember that he continuous, uh, continuously gets more and more uncomfortable. <laughs> and he just he has a hard time breathing. He, he can't breathe. Yeah. And he just starts shifting around in his seat. <laughs> And the next thing you know, he just pops his car door open and just vomits in the parking lot. <laughs> this happened on the second day of the challenge, which gives you a little indication of how 30 days. It's going to be a long 30 days. <laughs> uh, so after five days, Spurlock gains 9.5 pounds. After how long? <laughs> five days. Oh, my God. Five days. And you have to remember, so he's eating three meals a day at McDonald's. He's supersizing every time they ask him if he wants to. And he's eating every bite uh, as long as it takes. So he, he's going. He's he's gaining nine point five pounds after five days. And interestingly enough, he's also being monitored by doctors during this time, which is a very smart decision, I would say. Uh, and he starts to experience depression. Uh, and what's you know what's even more interesting about this is that he later noted that the depression could be relieved 
by consuming more McDonald's food. <laughs> Just as Ray Kroc designed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's something in the formula of a Big Mac that just makes you want to keep going. Um, but his doctor uh, describes per, uh, Spurlock at this time as being addicted. And he's showing all the classic symptoms. You know, he's, he's showing the depression. He's showing the trigger. He's, he's showing the resolution of that. And eating McDonald's makes him feel better and all those sort of things. So it's very interesting here, sort of the cycles that he goes through. Now, at one weigh-in, Spurlock actually lost one pound <laughs> from the previous weigh-in somehow. Uh, but the doctor speculated this was due to a loss of muscle mass because, as we know, oh, muscle mass is heavier than actual right. fat. So that being the case, um, or you know, the, the science of it is that the I think they say that the muscle mass in the same volume is heavier than right, uh, yeah. than fat. Uh, but at another weigh-in, a nutritionist said that Spurlock gained 17 pounds in 12 days. So, obviously, that's over a pound a day. I mean, that that's difficult to do on purpose. Yeah. I mean, which which clearly he was. He knew what was going to happen. He's eating uh, thousands that, of but calories. That's just, that that's just incredible. It, it's crazy. So, on day 21, uh, Spurlock really hits a, a stopping point. Uh, he's nine days away from finishing the challenge, and he starts having these heart palpitations. <laughs> and he immediately goes to the doctor, and the doctor advises him to stop what he's doing immediately to avoid serious health problems. Spurlock ignores the advice and continues for nine more days. So that's 27 more McDonald's meals beyond the heart palpitations. He's just cramming it in at this point, I assume, hoping for the best. (laughs) So on March 2nd, Spurlock makes uh, it to day 30. He achieves his goal. Uh, And, you know, one of the things that came out of this is that the doctors were surprised at the deterioration in Spurlock's health. He gained 24.5 pounds and his cholesterol increased by 65 points. With Spurlock having eaten as many McDonald's meals as most nutritionists say the ordinary person should eat in eight years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so so he, he ate eight years' worth of what's recommended for McDonald's meals McNuggets, in, 30, in 30 days. Big Macs, yeah. 30 days he ate what nutritionists would recommend you shouldn't eat uh, you know, for eight years. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot. Uh, the movie ends with a rhetorical question that just says, who do you want to see go first? You or them. And this is accompanied by a cartoon tombstone bearing the name of Ronald McDonald. So again, this is very in your face. And there was a lot of controversy that came out and was spurred around this movie. Uh, six weeks after the film's debut, McDonald's actually discontinued its supersized portions. Really? Yeah, and uh, you know, some folks reached out to McDonald's for an official statement. They said it had absolutely nothing to do with the documentary or the response from the documentary. Uh, one source that I read said that in the movie theaters where this documentary was screened, that McDonald's would actually run an ad before the movie started saying, call this number or visit this website. I can't remember which, but basically get in touch with us so we can tell you which parts of the movie we disagree with. All right, so you're telling me that McDonald's said that the documentary was not the reason that they discontinued supersizing meals. That's what they say. Yeah, I think they are McLying. <laughs> that is, I think that's a McLie. That is their story. Uh, but yeah, the, I, I think there was a lot of criticism around that. And I think uh, certainly McDonald's took a lot of the heat for saying that this documentary had nothing to do with it because the timing was just too perfect there <laughs> for them canceling the supersize options. And moving past the documentary and thinking more about 
what McDonald's has done over time, one thing that was very popular, and you might remember this, that is something they're still doing today, was the concept of the McDonald's Monopoly game. Oh, I, lo- I love that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I played that many times. I did too, and I, I think there were several pieces that were sort of chase pieces that you tried to get, like uh, boardwalks, right, like yeah. one that comes yeah. to mind. Park Place. And Park those, Place, yeah, yeah those, were, those were the big two. Uh, but the original McDonald's Monopoly game originated in 1987, and it was a partnership between McDonald's and Parker Brothers, the actual makers of the Monopoly board game. So essentially customers would collect stickers from drink cups, fries and sandwiches. I, I just remember peeling them off when I was a yep. kid and, you know, hoping to win the mega millions or at least uh, a small fry. A small fry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and these stickers could be redeemed in combination or individually for in-store prizes or in some cases thousands if not millions of dollars. So it's something that's been going on for a very long time. But what's really interesting is just last year in 2018, there was a news outlet that published details of a man named Jerome Jacobson. He was a former Georgia police officer, and he orchestrated a large-scale fraud of this game we're talking about, (laughs) a complete scam on McDonald's. Uh, I think it was estimated when all the totals came out that about $24 million dollars was defrauded from McDonald's from this one person. Was there a handshake involved? In this? <laughs> <laughs> Anything? Very possibly. Yeah, there there was a lot of handshaking yeah. going on because uh, you know as the details continued to come out, it was discovered that the circle that Jacobson was involved with included mobsters, psychics, strip club owners, drug traffickers. And even uh, even a family of Mormons. <laughs> Everybody loves McDonald's. Everybody loves McDonald's, and certainly everyone loves millions of dollars. So over the course of 12 years, from 1989 to 2001, $24 million escaped McDonald's, and all due to this one man and this ring of crime that he was perpetuating. So the way this all started is that Jacobson actually oversaw the printing process of the Monopoly tickets. So well, he's that's convenient. <laughs> very convenient. Uh, he he saw an opportunity <laughs> to rig the system, obviously, since he was part of that process and he had access to the tickets and he knew which ones were the most valuable. So he would sneak winning tickets away from the printer, give them to his friends, his family, friends of friends, and they always had to come back and give him a cut of the winnings. <laughs> this was the deal that he worked it out uh, in order to keep this going. So it wasn't very long before the FBI actually threw an anonymous tip found out that this was occurring. They reached out to McDonald's, uh, and I think this was in 2001, and they asked McDonald's to go ahead and run the promotion one more time because their intention this time was to nail this guy and to find out what was going on, to knock on his door and actually, you know, see (laughs) exactly what he was doing. Now, initially, McDonald's was kind of hesitant. They said, well, you know, maybe we'll just cancel the promotion and, and not worry about it, but the FBI kept pressing them, and eventually they agreed to go ahead and run the promotion in 2001. And uh, they, the FBI knocked on his door, and Jacobson and all of his cronies, all the people who were working under him and for him, were arrested by the FBI during this time. And it happened in the summer of 2001. And, of course, we know by the fall of 2001 that those were the events of 9-11. Oh yeah, sure. So if you're wondering, well, where did all of this news coverage go in relation to this particular issue? Very obviously it was just swept under the rug and it had to be because of 9-11. So Jacobson was ordered to pay back $12.5 million and 
he actually only got, and I say only, it's it's a lot of time, but I would think millions of dollars might mm-hmm. warrant more. And of course, I know nothing about the justice <laughs> system, but he he got three years in prison and and three, had to pay back the, three years, yeah, wow. and had to pay back the the money. So that kind of brings us through the history of McDonald's. We've hit some of the highlights of the Monopoly game as well as the documentary, Super Size Me. And that leads us over to a conversation about Nike. So, Jason, tell us a little (coughs) bit about Nike. That's correct. Nike was officially created in 1971, but unofficially, the story of Nike began in 1964 under the name of Blue Ribbon Sports. The founders of the young upstart company were University of Oregon track coach Bill Bowerman and a young man named Phil Knight. Knight was actually a member of the track team Bowerman coached. After finishing his running career, Knight attended the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And it was at Stanford that Knight wrote a paper that examined the possibility of forming a shoe company which would partner with a Japanese shoe company uh, I'll probably butcher this pronunciation, but uh, Onsuku Tiger, uh, it would only take a, few, a couple of years before Knight's idea would become a reality. Knight was prepared for the business aspect of the venture, but realized he lacked the knowledge of shoe design and overall athletic performance. So this is where the track coach came in. Knight had a great deal of trust uh, and respect for his old track coach, and he remembered how Bowerman had a talent for tinkering uh, with the shoes of his runners, who always seemed to perform a little better after having made modifications. Within a couple of years, Blue Ribbon Sports was open for business. In the first few months, Knight and Bowerman literally sold shoes out of the back of their car at track meets around the Pacific Northwest. In time, the demand for the Japanese-sponsored shoes began to grow, but Bowerman and Knight had ongoing shipment issues with the Japanese company, as well as the inability to secure loans to keep their business moving forward. Finally, in 1971, the companies legally split, and after a few months of restructuring, Nike was born. Oddly enough, Nike wanted to initially, or Knight wanted to initially name the new company Dimension Six, but he ultimately gave in to the recommendation of a man named Jeff Johnson and named the company Nike, named after the Greek goddess of victory. As for the iconic swoosh logo, that was designed by a Portland State University college student named Carolyn Davidson, who received a whopping, you want to guess, you want to guess the amount? I'm going to say $5,000. $35. Wow. $35. (laughs) So obviously that logo has gone to adorn many jerseys, many shoes, many t-shirts and sweatshirts, and $35. Yeah. $35. So, you know, Knight would later joke that uh, that was uh, $35 well spent. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe a good the investment. best $35. <laughs> yeah. So while Nike was a new name with a new design, uh, it was the waffle tread that set Nike apart from its competitors. The waffle shoe featured raised rubber notches, which allowed athletes to have better grip on playing surfaces. Uh, And the Nike folks actually came upon this idea by uh, watching breakfast being made one day. And they they actually looked at a a legit waffle maker. And they thought if you were to invert uh, the design of that and put it onto a sole of a shoe, that it would probably have better grip than just simple lines. That's awesome. So did they actually... (laughs) 
<laughs> I can just imagine them pulling out their waffle maker. I mean, kind of, yeah. Pouring the rubber in there. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's, that's essentially how it started, really. Yeah. Wow. I they love just it. kind of inverted the design. Nike's profits steadily rose from the late 70s to the mid 80s, but it was in 1984 when the fate of Nike would change forever. So, any guesses there, Shannon, on what may have happened around the 84, 85 year in terms of maybe uh, an athlete signing an endorsement deal? Would it be Michael Jordan, maybe? That is correct. Uh, they signed NBA rookie Michael Jordan. Uh, Jordan originally wanted to sign with Adidas, but after Nike offered him a half a million dollars a year for five years, uh, along with two brand new Mercedes Benz. Oh, that's all. Uh, yeah. Jordan chose to partner with Nike. Soon thereafter, Nike introduced the Air Jordan 1s, which made the company $100 million in the first year. Wow. This was the sudden and massive influx of money that pushed Nike over the top in the shoe industry. So they were able to scrape along on $100 million? Yeah, they got by. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it is. Over the next few years, Nike would, would go to war with another uh, prominent shoe company named Converse. Now, I remember uh, this is when I was a kid. Like, you know, so when I was like in elementary school, Converse was sort of the big name. Uh, you know, Converse had been gaining popularity in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, primarily with stars like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. But the 85 Air Jordans sealed the deal on the shoe war. From the late 80s through the early 90s, as Magic and Bird began to see their careers come to a close, Converse also saw their place in the shoe game falter. On the flip side, during the early 90s, Michael Jordan was coming into his prime en route to winning his first championship in 1991. And as a result, Nike sales exploded even more. In 1988, Nike launched one of its most memorable ad campaigns. So Shannon, do you know what those three magic words may have been. Would it be just do it? There you go. That, those are the three <laughs> words. And something really interesting about uh, those three words, uh, those words were, were actually based on the last words of a man who was on death row. And he actually said, uh, he did not say just do it. He said, let's do this. Oh, wow. But so Nike where, was aware of that? Nike was aware of that, yeah. And they based the and logo they, on that. And wow. And they, they, they yeah. based that on there. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's a little morbid, but true. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, a year later, in 1989, they released their Bo Nose campaign based on two-sport all-star Bo Jackson. And, and I distinctly just remember uh, when I was probably around sixth grade, uh, my grandparents, uh, they bought me a, 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 a Bo Jackson T-shirt. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was sort of half football player, half baseball player. You know, f- for, about a, for about a year, Bo Jackson was like the coolest athlete in the world. I mean, he broke a bat over his head. You What's know, he cooler was, than that? Yeah, that no, just tells I mean, me, cool yeah, guy. Yeah, nothing. And so, uh, you know, Bo Jackson definitely made Nike a lot of money in a very short amount of, of time. And, and you know, when I was in the sixth grade, like I said, uh, I was pretty – uh, certain that I was the coolest human that ever walked Earth. Yeah, you know, while, while wearing that Bo Jackson T-shirt. <laughs> now, did you break any bats over your head? Uh, maybe like a wiffle ball bat. That's about okay. It. Yeah, <laughs> nothing too major. That's that's ten percent. Cool. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nike would continue to grow until 1996 uh, when they signed another new sports star that opened a whole new market for them. So, any guesses on maybe who this might have been? That was a little bit tougher. 96. Yeah. So, New market. Like, seems like I remember this a little bit because of the, the advertising and the, the Wheaties box, yeah. actually, oh, is yeah. what comes to yep. mind. Um, 
Is it Tiger Woods? Tiger Woods. That is that is absolutely correct. Uh, over his career, Nike has paid Tiger Woods a war pension, totaling <laughs> over two hundred and fifty million dollars. Goodness. So if Tiger received two hundred and fifty million, just imagine the profit that Nike made off of his name. Hand over fist, just like McDonald's. Yep. yep. The next significant year for Nike in regard to signing a huge endorsement occurred in 2003 when they signed LeBron James and Kobe Bryant. These athletes won Olympic gold medals and multiple NBA championships, which made Nike a boatload of cash. Uh, And then even both of these, Kobe Bryant has has since retired. LeBron James obviously now playing for the Lakers. uh, And Nike has still benefiting uh, from the endorsement deals of, of these two basketball players. So you know, when you look at the timeline, uh, it always seems that Nike has been fortunate to sign a major influential athlete uh, every decade or so. And 2019 may be the year they landed their next cash cow. This past summer, Nike signed the number one pick in the NBA draft, Zion Williamson. Uh, Williamson was a consensus All-American at Duke, and he was a YouTube sensation Uh, his uh, junior and senior years uh, before attending Duke. And to show you how much the money has changed in the shoe game, uh, Michael Jordan, arguably the best player who ever played, received a five-year, $2.5 million deal from Nike in 1985. So five years, $2.5 million. Zion Williamson, before ever having played an NBA game, signed a seven-year, $75 million shoe contract. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap things up here with a few just mind-blowing statistics. I know you had your earlier with the with the, the fries and the hamburgers and 72 trillion every second. So Yeah, <laughs> that, nine million pounds of fries <clears throat> sold every day. My mind is already halfway blown, so uh, let's see yeah. what Nike has. Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to finish it off here. So. So I'm going to finish up here with just some statistics and then, and then a single quote that I think uh, best exemplifies the Nike brand. So uh, first, the stats. Nike has 785 factories employing just over 1 million people. Over the last several years, Nike has reported between 15 to $17 billion of profit in, in each of those years. Now, this is the one that, that blows my mind away. On average... Nike sells 25 pairs of shoes every second of every day, somewhere in the world. That is insane. 25 pairs of shoes every second of every day, all year long. Man, I wonder how many hamburgers they could sell. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe Ray Kroc and Phil Knight could get together. And, you know. Right. Uh, and finally, the following is a quote from Phil Knight's autobiography named Shoe Dog. Knight says, I wanted to build something that was my own, something I could point to and say, I made that. It was the only way I saw to make life meaningful. So I thought those were some uh, you know, thought-provoking, powerful words from literally the creator of Nike. Yeah, very deep. Um, and Shannon, that's a wrap for me. That's all I have as well. And thank you to everyone who is listening and subscribing to Slapdash. I hope you have a great day. Take care. 